Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to the Perkins Platform. Uh, This is a monthly solutions-oriented talk radio show. Each month, we dedicate about 30 minutes to explore contemporary issues and solutions in education leadership, and this is your host, Brian Perkins. Uh, This month, we have uh, another special guest with us. Uh, We have uh, Dr. Michael Dumas, who is a uh, professor at the University of California, Berkeley, in the Graduate School of Education and African American Studies. So, uh, welcome, Michael. Well, thank you. Thank you for having me on. Uh, today, we're going to talk about uh, Black experiences in public education. Um, part of the show title uh, uh, is uh, kind of a subtitle is in the Black Lives Matter era, um, just to kind of frame. Uh, what we want to emphasize, talk about a little bit, that um, there's a lot going on that has a lot of uh, uh, policymakers, researchers, um, and and just public citizens alike concerned about uh, the way uh, Black students in general are experiencing public school. Um, I'd mentioned, uh, Michael, uh, we were talking earlier, I mentioned to you that uh, I conducted some research some years ago and found in the United States, at least among self-reporting among African-American children, that they had statistically lower ratings for their school experience than did their white counterparts. Um, as compared to when we did the analysis by gender, there were not as many differences, uh, also surprisingly, but um, there were a lot of things that were really uh, concerning in some of the findings. And I'll just, just to start the conversation, I'll start with one of the things that we found was that on the statement that um, uh, my teachers care whether I'm successful or not, um, African-American children at a a rate of about 46% of the African-American children said that they didn't believe that their teachers cared whether they were successful or not, compared to uh, the white children where close to 78% or so said that they believed that the teachers did care. Uh, How do you respond to that? Like, does that surprise you? Does it, you know, I'm sure it concerns you as it does me, but I mean, what, what, Mm -hmm. what is your response to that? No, it actually doesn't surprise me, not only um, as a researcher, but it also doesn't surprise me as someone who was a black student um, going through public school um, in Seattle. Um, So uh, I talk about that in my work as um, in terms of thinking about schooling as a site of black suffering uh, Mm. and and black social suffering, the sense that um, the understanding on the part of black children and also black parents um, and caregivers that what they are experiencing in schools is something that is shared among um, other black folks and that is is as a result of um, their blackness, that that's that's the source of um, whether it be moral vert um, kinds of um, antagonism from teachers and administrators or just the subtle um, everyday forms of just disdain and disregard. And so what you're hearing when you ask that question and and students respond to the question 
teachers, um, I don't sense that they care about me, it may not be anything overt that the teacher has said. I mean, it can often be in the um, greater expression of care or smiles or touch with um, mm. students who are not black than with those who are black. So often people think, well, I care about all my children, but it turns out that um, we have other research that actually shows that um, in many cases, um, particularly white teachers may um, think that they're actually being more sensitive, think that they're actually calling on all students equally, treating them all the same, but then when faced with videotape, um, often even they have to admit that, wow, I didn't even understand that I was um, treating students differently in that way. Uh, and so every, all those things young children are experiencing, and they, they do feel those things. Yeah. So um, w w when they say they don't realize that they're doing those things, what, what is it that is causing it to happen? Is it our socialization uh, that, that caused people to just, um, just inherently uh, take this behavior and you know, these behaviors occur? What is it that, that then that if they don't realize it, what makes them, what makes them do it? Well, we have to go back um, a ways to this because I really do believe in my work um, on anti-blackness in education um, that, that that group of scholarship and this kind of thinking around the emergence of anti-blackness goes way back to the, actually to the slave trade, this notion of the construction of black people as not human. Um, and that one might think that, hey, well, didn't slavery end in 1865? Well, the reality is, is that that mindset, the idea of black people as not being human persists. Um, and part of that, what that means in education is um, what it has always meant, which is this kind of underlying sense that black people are uneducable. So it's not so much that um, they, an understanding that black children haven't learned something, actually inherent often in people's um, worldviews is the sense that black children cannot learn that there's something that's there. And so I, most people would say, I don't, I don't believe that. I wouldn't, uh, I don't think that. But that's so built into our broader social structure, into our kind of um, cultural practices and kind of understandings of black people as not um, capable of learning, as not intellectual. I, I was just reading a piece um, by one of the early um, presidents of the American Sociological Association back in 1918, and he actually says that, you know, um, the Negro is not um, a natural intellectual. Um, the Negro is um, somebody who basically just lives life day to day and doesn't really think about it. Um, and unlike the Anglo-Saxon, the, the Negro is not a pioneer or adventurer. Um, so in other words, there's a construction of black folks as not creative, not, not um, inquisitive, not actually capable of intellectual capabilities. And that's mm -hmm. persisted really through most of our history. And so I think that that's something we have to face, that at the, root of the, of, at the root of this kind of these biases, what we like to call racial biases, is actually a more um, fundamental anti-blackness in education. Sure. Sure. Well, well, you know, when I hear you say that, and you say this, it's from 1918, I guess, given the context, um, you know, I think one of, it, it's, it doesn't surprise me that um, a, a very elementary analysis would lead you to that conclusion, given where where African American uh, citizens um, uh, were at that given time, um, worrying about the day to day. Um, in at least in this country, there were very few um, opportunities and and the like 
uh, for African Americans to demonstrate interest in in those things. Not that there were none, but that just doesn't surprise me. But it, but again, a very elementary analysis might lead you to that conclusion. But it's it's certainly surprising that someone of uh, that who was a sociologist would would reach that conclusion, not considering uh, the context in which uh, this was happening. But I guess, you know, one of the things that, that really struck me that you just said about the, um, the as a site of black suffering, um, and I think that, you know, it's very interesting that, um, that I, I, I'm going to look and, and read more about that. Um, what is your response uh, to the fact that in some cases um, it is it, it is not um, other racial groups actually doing something to African-Americans, but in the cases of, I don't know if you've, if you've seen or the listeners have seen what is going on in Detroit right now, uh, where principals have been arrested for uh, taking money and, and not getting the supplies that, that, that were charged and getting kickbacks um, that I've seen in some cases where there's a, a some communities where there's a black mayor, black fire chief, black police chief, and on and on and on. And, and then you see these kinds of things happening to uh, black children. Um, right. Well, I mean, I think, first of all, I mean, I think I have to go back to the, um, the example I gave before from 1918. The fact that white people didn't know what black people were doing, black people have always been involved in um, cultural production, intellectual thought. Um, it's just that um, white people never gave them credit for it and were not interested in it. In fact, sure. they had an active sure. disinterest. Um, and so even when they, when they would see it, they would actually not report on it. They would not talk about it. They would actually dismiss sure. it. Um, and so, sure. that's, so, so that's, that's a more structural thing than just what an individual person thinks. It actually is a, the structure of um, white supremacy. It's also the, the structure of white settler colonialism, the need to actually um, – erase whole, whole indigenous populations because they had to determine that these people, the indigenous, um, are, are not worthy of having this land because they've not developed it. And black people are worthy of basically working this land for us to develop the settlement, the colony for us. And so that, that's been an intentional project against all evidence. So even very educated white folks against all evidence still hold to this because part of that is not so much um, what they um, think it's true. It's what they need to be true. Um, so that that's mm -hmm. part of this. So I think that and understanding that structurally then comes to your second question is that um, black middle class edu you know, educators, administrators, policymakers are still exist within a broader system of white supremacy and this kind of desire for um, capital um, accumulation, this sense of, of getting getting paid, getting rich and all that, because that's what America, quote unquote, is supposed to be about. And so there is this drive to basically profit off of um, the backs of um, black folks. And so they internalize as well the same anti-blackness and, and actually exist within a system that has already in many ways starved the communities that they um, serve, sometimes with really good intentions initially. Um, but the, the reality is, is that those communities, because as they are identified as black, are starved of resources and are seen as not worthy of being saved. And so then they put black folks in charge of it, but it is really white supremacy to the, that is the hidden hand, um, even when you have black leadership. They aren't in charge. Um, 
leaders are not sure. really the ones that are that are in charge of the allocation of resources, um, and often they are beholden to um, standards that are set, um, expectations that are set um, above them. So, for example, if you're going to talk about Detroit, you have to think about the the governor of um, the of Michigan, um, and you and you can think about um, Flint had a black mayor, but that black mayor and it was not in charge of how they got the poisoned water. Um, it sure. was a white governor, um, and it was the sure. structure of understanding that Flint was not worthy of enough resources. So sure. I think that my attention is always to the systems within which um, black kind of folks who might be given charge of cities after white people have extracted the resources from those cities uh-huh. and have left, uh-huh. um, sure. and then they have to kind of deal with that. And so in that, I think also you're going to have a range of human beings that just it's, it's a tough situation. And so although they may be culpable for their actions in those, we have to think about the larger structure of white supremacy that makes um, those kinds of um, more likely to be the ones that people take. Right. And, and when you think about not just physical um, plant and the, the material resources uh, that are in buildings. Um, and one, one of the one of the guests I had a couple months ago uh, was a, a white teacher um, who has written a couple of articles that appeared in the Huffington Post and watched, uh, New York Times. Um, talked about her experience teaching white uh, black children uh, in the South. And one of the things that uh, just really surprised me was that she kept referring to um, in the South, the, the black schools and the white schools. And, and that when, mm-hmm. uh, even when I've talked to my, and, I, and even before that, we had another gentleman who's at UCLA, used to be at Harvard, Dr. Gary Orfield, who I'm sure you're familiar mm-hmm. with, did a lot of work on desegregation. Mm-hmm. He was on the show in December and he was saying, that you know the, the the segregation of American schools has has happened, and that is just not being talked about. But that schools are are resegregated, and not that they ever became fully integrated schools, but that um, it, interestingly, as she talked about black and white schools, she she described a situation where she took a group of her black students to in the same district. Um, to a um, a competition, and the competition was held at a white school in the same district. And she said, as the kids walked in, what broke her heart about it was that as her kids walked in, they looked up at the walls and at the ceilings in amazement. And she said, they said, wow, these people must really care about these kids. And, and that, so what does that do? to collectively, to a group of kids in a place, you know, in the South or wherever it's occurring, what does that do to them to feel less than worthy? Does it perpetuate the, the, uh, the feeling or the, the psychology associated with being um, a second-class citizen? How does it impact um, the group and the generation of kids? Well, I think one of the things I would say is that, is that I'm sorry. Let me, I'm sorry. One of the things I would say is that I believe I believe that um, black children are perceived not actually as second class citizens, but actually 
um, again, not as fully human. So there's, that's really underlying this. Um, and and, and there's some theoretical work um, on anti-blackness and, and actually on thinking about black social suffering, um, how they are treated as, as, as not as human. So if it would be one thing to be second-class citizens where you thought you were being treated less than, but you find, wow, they're treating us actually in some ways worse than dogs. Um, uh-huh. they, they do not uh-huh. regard us as, as worthy of these things. Now, as to the psychology, I think um, I don't – in my own work, I don't think so much about um, this sense of, um, I think that focusing on the psychology gets us to end up being preoccupied with somehow thinking of black children as damaged by this. Mm-hmm. And I think even some of the desegregation literature um, has this preoccupation with presenting these um, images of black children as kind of sad and damaged and um, just walking around um, hate, hurtful and hateful. Um, and I don't mm-hmm. think that that's true. Um, and actually, I was thinking about a study by um, Carla O'Connor at University of Michigan um, in which she found that um, black students who actually had that understanding of um, the kind of structure of anti-blackness, she didn't use that term, or the structure of schooling as a site of black struggle, um, actually performed better academically. They were actually able to understand that and then see that their, their efforts as a kind of, it was, it was a kind of resilience. And so actually, um, through various kinds of critical pedagogies, I'm thinking of a lot of the folks I know who work in hip-hop pedagogies, pedagogies, you find that actually when black students actually um, are aware of these things, it can actually translate into um, a kind of um, productive kind of resistance against these things, uh, where, where, they have, where they have teachers and administrators who actually will, um, in a sense, back them up on that and say, yes, we understand that this system is intentionally set against you. Um, that does not necessarily translate into a kind of um, psycho, you know, um, psychology of kind of um, downtroddenness um, and, and giving up. It actually can translate. Now, where it gets worse is when teachers and administrators act like the system is fair and that racism is not an issue and that mm-hmm. um, the, the student, it's all in the student's head and, or, or that maybe we should um, focus only on the positive things and not actually focus on what the student's readily observe and, and experience in their everyday lives. And that never works. Um, that, that never works in terms of lifting students up or making them feel better. Um, so I think that it begins with an understanding that, um, that we have to be honest with young people and with their families about the ways in which we have not only historically, but um, currently we have a long legacy of anti-blackness in education. It's informed um, education policy and practice. Parent and open about that and then interrogating our own work um, becomes then important to even begin to address that. Sure, sure. Uh, For those of you who are just joining us, uh, have Dr. Michael Dumas, who is a professor at the University of California, Berkeley, at the Graduate School of Education and African American Studies Department. Uh, We are talking about black experiences in public education. Um, Those of you who are interested in calling in, please feel free to do so. Uh, 657-383-1481. Again, 657-383-1481. We'll take a few calls. Uh, We're going to continue our conversation about black experiences and that, uh, you know, one of the, one of the other pieces that I wanted to mention to you about uh, this other teacher um, who is a white teacher uh, teaching in uh, black schools uh, also mentioned that um, 
and, and it supports a lot of what you just said about the, the subhuman status um, was that she mentioned that there were books and, and you know, my mother is 79 years old and she told me about her segregated school experience and that they had books after the white children across town in Alabama um, had had used the books and they would see those books, you know, five or six years later uh, in their classrooms as the new books. And so this teacher uh, said that that's still happening, that that's still uh, going on. And um, my, uh, you know, my real uh, concern about that is, is that, um, you know, we, there are, there are a lot of people that do know that this is going on. Um, and it doesn't, it doesn't end, it doesn't stop. Um, and I was just thinking about the intersection about policies that get created um, and that, you know, there are systems both in our higher education system. I'm a, also a product of a historically black college and um, they're just resources that are different, that are blatantly different. Um, and that those institutions have been set up to be different and to not provide the same um, uh, educational experience. Um, what's the right. answer, or, or at least what is the approach in education policy to address this? Well, I don't believe education policy is going to address it. I don't believe policy reform is going to address it. And I think that that has often been the hope of researchers is that if we could simply point out the inequities, uh, then people would be moved to address them. Both legislators with school officials um, who are portioning resources would just be moved to do this. Um, however, you know, I've been thinking a lot and writing about the justification of educational inequality, which I think is a, a new shift. Um, I think that in the past we've had the, the approach I was just talking about, which is um, a kind of liberal approach of um, explaining inequities, um, building up empathy or sympathy for them, um, and people, once they recognize that things are unfair, will move to fix those things. However, um, as we saw in the years um, where we were pushing for um, school integration, um, the reality is, is that um, white parents and, uh, and, and legislators um, basically pushed back against that the entire time. They, they actually intentionally, systematically um, found ways to make sure that the resources that their children enjoyed would not be shared with black children and other children of color. That was intentional in every city. I, I studied Seattle. And basically, white parents there organized in ways to push back against any effort and to make sure that their resources were not being shared. And that still happens today as we move back toward resegregated schools. And then on top of that, they'll justify it by saying one of two things. The first thing is that, hey, um, I worked hard to get a home in this neighborhood and to have my child in that school. Why should I have to share my resources with those people? Um, and it's just it's an infringement on my freedom to have to share, to redistribute the resources in a way that I wasn't there back in the day, therefore I have you know, um, no responsibility. The other way that it's done is to say, well, actually, black children just um, and their families um, did not, um, other, other ethnic groups are succeeding, and so if, they're, if black children are not succeeding in this kind of society, it has to be their own fault. So, yes, they'll acknowledge very blatantly, yes, I understand there's inequality, um, but that inequality is either um, a result of their own failure to take advantage of opportunities 
Um, and so then they find themselves in these situations. Um, and so then the blame then gets put back on the black family and the black child, um, even once the person recognizes that there are deep inequities. And so in a sense, what I'm calling that is this justification of educational inequality, a kind of insistence that educational inequality is still fair because people mm-hmm. have the opportunity and they fail. And so and one of the things that they can do now is because there are some subsets of some other people of color who have succeeded, they can use that often to um, against black folks to say, well, look, we're not racist because there are some other people of color or even there's a few black people who succeeded. And because they succeeded, therefore your claims um, are illegitimate. Um, mm-hmm. just because there's Oprah, because there's Obama, um, I remember when Obama was elected that a lot of people said, well, now black and Latino children no longer have any excuses because this one man who grew up in a white family who went to Ivy League schools and was, you know, and then became president, um, since he was in that office, therefore that, that, that all, all black and Latino children no longer had any impediment um, to each sure. level of Sure, I heard those. This is where we are. Mm -hmm. Yes, Mm -hmm. I heard it too. Right. And so this is where we are, where in a sense, I think people do recognize that there's any inequities. Uh, And here's the other thing. Here's why I said that I don't think policy is going to do it. Part part of what I just said, which is that I don't think people really genuinely want to do anything anything about it um, in any substantive, um, sustained way. So there will be um, piecemeal efforts, like my brother's keeper, for example. Um, which is actually not actually um, it's not actually a government program, and, and President Obama was very clear that it's not it's not any funds from the government, and it's really a relatively small amount for mentoring um, or for uh, some good things. There's some good things in it, but it's really a small sum of money for, um, and it's mostly focused on um, and justified by this sense that um, in this case, boys and young men of color um, lack motivation. And so we want to, when, when President Obama was introducing it, he said, you know, just like you, and this is in a room of, you know, mostly black and Latino and um, Native children, um, males, he said, just like you, I smoked too much weed and didn't work very hard. And so one, he places all, this is the, the source of your problems is because you either smoke too much weed, you don't work as hard as you can, and you have behavior problems. This is why you are having problems. So it's, the problem is constructed as in the bodies of, these, um, in this case, black and Latino and Native boys, rather than in, in the larger structure and in the long legacy of systematic attempts to make sure that children of color and particularly black um, um, children did not have access to the same amount of resources. So there's very little attention, structural factors, the, the structural political economic factors that shape um, educational inequity and inequality and more of a focus on some kind of behavioral element or motivational kind of psychosocial um, problem inherent in the bodies of black children. Right. And, and, and you know, sure, sure. And you've raised some really, really good issues. I wish we you know, had even more time. I'm going to go on a little bit on here uh, because I, you know, you, I know that a lot of your writing has been, about uh, black boys and uh, especially uh, the piece you wrote in the Harvard Educational Review um, uh, uh, that is about the critical reimagination of the black boyhood um, that's coming up, um, is that I have to ask though also that with the the emphasis of, of the 
the crisis being in black males. Um, mm -hmm. I recently attended uh, a town hall meeting of sorts um, uh, in another Northeast city um, where I was uh, facilitating the conversation. And um, there were a number of people that stood up, especially the high school, young high school females who were saying, hey, you know, look over here. You know, <laughs> we really want you to understand, like, we, we, we get it. We know that there are a lot of things happening to our black males, but what about us? Um, right. and, and that there's, there's also a crisis among black females. And so, well, I, yes, yes, I've been very clear in, in the two pieces because most of my writing is actually not about um, black male, and the two pieces that I've written are um, very clear in their critique of the um, of all the uh, the construction of black male as problem and therefore the problem of black people. And so, in a sense, oh. um, as I've been very clear, even in, even in uh, part of the reason I've actually focused on black boyhood and in a sense my critique of my brother's keeper um, in terms of how it constructs um, black um, young men and boys is because I am troubled by this gendering of um, black educational inequalities or inequities. Um, so that, again, placing the problem as one of gender and then we need to fix somehow these boys as opposed to a broader political economy um, that is always racialized um, in terms of who gets access to resources. Um, so instead, I think that it serves, basically what I would say is it serves a kind of um, rightist neoliberal agenda to focus um, on gender as the source of the problem. Now, I'm not saying that there should not be gender, gendered research, like research that actually looks specifically, for example, the, at the fact that black girls are suspended at a rate, um, I believe, six times more um, than white girls um, that, that that's actually a function of gender, and you find that black boys are suspended at three times more than white boys. So when you do that kind of um, statistic, and that's out of um, some of that, the same research of, of the people who are saying we need to also be thinking about how black girls' lives matter. But so part of my problem, my, part of my contention here is that, yes, we do need to understand that black girls' lives matter, but we also need to understand, one, that black people don't, black children don't just come in boy and girl. So part of it's a problem of um, that race, that gender binary. So what, where does that leave black trans youth as well and those who do, do not identify along those strict gender lines? And then the other problem oh, absolutely. is... Absolutely. The other problem is over-gendering the problems of black people. Because um, a, a lot of black people live in the same homes, um, go to the same schools, um, experience anti-blackness, which can have gendered effects, but the source of the problem was not their gender. The source of the problem is again anti-blackness and white supremacy um, and so those kinds of structures are the problems and they, they show up in gendered ways and so i think that part of the attraction of um the research on black males is that it actually and again the researchers are doing it doing wonderful work in a lot of ways but i think that part of the reason why it's so easy to get so many more millions of dollars to do research on black males is because for two reasons one it is already consistent with a kind of patriarchal notion that the, um, the black family is um, having problems because black women are running it and black women are running communities. And so the sense of how we need to get black men back in charge so they can kind of um, manage their, their people, kind of keep their people, keep their women and their children in control. So that's part of the problem. But then the other is that it's easy to um, take attention away from 
the broader um, structural and economic issues if you can locate the problem in um, the bodies of black um, boys. So it's in the body rather than in the larger structure. And indeed, there are some, um, some statistics that do show, for example, black boys as being um, achieving at far less levels than um, black girls. But the crazy thing is that when you look at all those statistics, it turns out that both black boys and black girls are succeeding at far lower levels than um, whites. And so the, the gap, the racial gap is much larger in many ways than the gender gap within um, race. But I think that by keeping us preoccupied with that gap within race, then we have not actually looked at the broader structural problems. And I think that that's by design. I think that's by neoliberal design that we would focus only on these problems within black bodies and not within the larger political economy. Wow, excellent. I mean, this has been uh, fascinating to hear. Um, you know, this is a solutions-oriented talk show. So um, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to put it out there to you uh, as we mm -hmm. go to our close is, so now what? So given the, 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 the real difficulties and everything mm -hmm. that you say, uh, so what is your advice if you were to give any um, or your kind of your, what are our next steps to address? Okay. So I believe that one of the um, next steps is for both, um, it, has to, it has to be movement-based, really. That, that really the only way we're going to get changes, and I think this is really consistent with Black Lives Matter, is through um, understanding that um, we are in the middle of a political struggle. This is a political struggle. It's not ma mainly a pedagogical struggle or a leadership struggle. Um, it is largely a political struggle. And so I think people um, are going to need to be involved in some way or another. And I think that, I think that there, it's imperative for, I think a lot of um, teachers are um, through groups, um, a lot of teacher activists are kind of saying like, wow, how can I move beyond just the great things I may do in the classroom to really be allied with the communities that I serve, to actually be in solidarity with the communities that I work with. And so, and their principals are also struggling with that. Like, how do I lead this? Well, I work in this system the system which is inherently anti-black, um, but I want to, and I, so I understand that. And I, so therefore I understand that my work is a political struggle. And so how am I not just alone? I need to get with other people. That's how um, movements only happen if you move beyond your isolation and kind of say like, well, I'm going to find others who are also equally committed to transforming or up destroying and reimagining this system. Um, so you have to get with other people. Um, so, I think that those of us in, um, who are um, faculty are also kind of thinking this you know, group of black scholars we're going to try to get together and think about, like, wow, what do we need to do next? Because here's the problem. If we don't do something radically different than what we're doing now, if we don't actually get together and see ourselves as part of a larger movement that then actually demands action, we will be having the same conversation in 10 years and in 20 years, and we will be, one, we'll be having the same hand-wringing around this and we'll be saying how much we intended well we really are we have the best of intentions no at this point i think we need the best of actions not just the best of intentions and so mm -hmm. finding concrete ways and i guess what i'm saying is that there they do exist in various cities um there are um teachers that are getting together um and 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 um, forming movements impacting sometimes the, the unions but as you see in chicago and in seattle and in other cities um where um in detroit um, so you have teachers kind of saying, no, it's time for us to, be, to see ourselves as um, 
people who are in solidarity with the communities and as members of those communities, uh, and you're seeing parents groups, and you do see young people walking out and actually saying, we're going to be part of We understand school as a site of political struggle. It is a movement for our very lives. And that's, that's what I think is really going to have to happen. And I think that there's a role for education leaders um, and teachers in that. Um, it's a tough one because you work in the system that really is working against um, the very the, the children and communities that you serve. Um, and so there are competing things there. And I, but I think that there's an ongoing and deep conversation, um, an honest conversation, I think, that some um, teachers and administrators are having about how to navigate um, being both in a system that you really need to destroy and reimagine. Well, thank you, thank you so much. Uh, this is uh, Perkins Platform, and we have Dr. Michael Dumas from the University of California, Berkeley, with us today. Uh, just want to remind those of you who are listening in to join us uh, in a few weeks on April 13th, where we're going to have uh, Dr. Paul Zak, uh, a scientist and author, um, who's going to talk about the moral molecule, the source of love and prosperity. Uh, uh, in his work on the importance of trust in, uh, in relationships and in leadership. Uh, so we're delighted uh, that you joined us today, uh, Dr. Dumas. Uh, we'll continue to look at your work and we just want you to keep on doing it. And um, uh, we hope to get you back in here uh, one day soon. For those of you who are out here, and we, we really appreciate you being on, uh, those of you listening, just want you to go well and stay well. Thank you so much. Anyway.